Nature did her duty and wiped it out, and in rage, his engineers were beheaded. Let me be clear. I said Mother Nature. Father God did his, speaking of the providence of God. I was speaking in the sense of the flesh and off the cuff. That, that is not correct. Father God destroyed, nature destroyed, using the means of nature, destroyed that bridge. He had all the engineers beheaded. In fact, he was so irrational that he had the sea whipped. I, don't, I, I still can't fathom that. I read it again. I'm just like, how do you whip the sea? Uh, it's impossible. But he ordered it to be done. In fact, he ordered chains to be taken into the ocean and the waves chained. This guy is clearly crazy. It, it doesn't make any sense. And yet, the, the historical record shows that with all these orders, men go around doing everything he says lest they lose their lives as well. So verse 1 of chapter 2, it's clear he's in a low place physiologically. He returns to his palace. Now he's low. He, he comes to his palace with his clothes torn. He finds it empty. But the thing is, is it's not empty. His palace is actually full of concubine and, and all manner of women that he has chosen, but yet he comes home as an empty man on every level. It's just a reminder to us that the richest in the world are not so rich after all, are they? As we've been thinking about what Jesus says in Matthew 16, what, what does it profit a man to uh, gain the whole world and, and uh, sell his soul, right? You know, the world would have us to believe that all the glitz and the glamour, that, that that's where it's at. Church, don't be fooled. Not all that, that glitters is gold. This is the most powerful man on earth, and he's empty. He's absolutely empty. So he comes home, and he finds his palace empty, but it's not empty. He is empty. He is an empty man. And so it seems as if his advisors are watching all of this. The text clearly tells us in verse 1 that he comes home and he remembered, verse 1, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. It's almost as if he's realizing just how crazy and irrational he is. It's at this moment he needs a wife. He needs a queen. He needs a help me. He, he senses that. It is not, Scripture's clear, it's not good for man to be alone. But yet this man has lived life on his own terms. And so he's just a lustful man of the flesh and can find no satisfaction. I think it's good for us to hit Paul's here and just kind of draw out of the text here what the overarching narrative of Scripture teaches us, just as we see that Xerxes is this typical man of, of the flesh looking for love, looking for, to fulfill what God has naturally given. It's good for all of us to just compare the biblical understanding of what true love is compared to this world's thinking of what love is. And I want to take just a very brief moment to do that. I think Xerxes here, Ahasuerus, serves as a great illustration. If you could draw two columns in your mind's eye, or if you're taking notes, you could draw on one side lust, and on the other side love. Lust and love. And I would just submit to you, only the Spirit of God can teach us what true love is. Yes, I'm not saying that people can't have long marriages if they don't know Jesus. I'm not saying any of the obvious facts. But what I am saying is, is you can't know what Christ-like love is. You can't know what the love, the venter of love, and I mean love in its essence. I don't just mean the physical act. I'm talking about all the comprehensive body, soul, spirit of what the union of, of a marriage partner and what God shows us of what love is. You can't know what that is apart from Christ, friends. 
Young people, hear the word of the Lord as well. Some of these things are ahead of you in the Lord's will and in His providence. Now, we have here in this comparison lust and love, but the world would simply think where it says lust, they would say, no, 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 that's, that's our love. That's what, I, what we're describing as to what the world thinks love is. Number one, lust gives temporary satisfaction. Lust gives temporary satisfaction. And then number one on the other side, love. Love in God's will gives satisfaction. Love gives satisfaction. And the key here is that it's, it's Christ-like love. Now, I did not prepare the study to be an in-depth study on the love of Christ. So for those of you already taking your notes to come correct me after the service, just, just hold on tight for a second. We're just touching on it. Number two, lust is concerned about now. It's immediate. It's self-centered. It's me-centered. And true love is concerned about an individual past, present, and future. True love cares about the whole person. True love says, listen, what does God think about this? What is God's purposes and plan? But lust, yeah, lust is just concerned about now. Number three, lust only takes. Lust only takes. This is why Xerxes is such an empty man. But true love, thirdly, just by way of comparison, true love gives. It gives of itself. It gives all of itself. And see, these two things are not compatible. Lust simply takes, and love pours out and gives. And by the way, in a beautiful marriage union, each partner is giving of themselves to each other. Fourthly, lust is greedy. True love is grateful. Lust is greedy. True love is, is grateful. Number five, lust is concerned about self. Another way of saying it, love is concerned for the others. Lust enjoys temporary things that titillate the flesh, that focus on the flesh. But true love enjoys fellowship, mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical. God's design for the gift of true love, and I'm making application here to marriage because that's what we find here in the text, is one that is unexplainable. Words fail us. Words do not describe the gift of true Christ-like love for our spouse that the Holy Spirit works in us. Seven, we have eight total. Number seven, lust leads to destruction and division. In one sense, much like anger, we could say about the attribute of anger, anger almost always destroys. Lust inevitably leads to destruction and division. But love compared to that promotes construction and growth in relationships and with others. Lastly, in the column of lust, lust loses interest. This explains the world around us today. When they begin to lose interest, they're gone. It's self-centered. It's, it's me-centered. It's wrapped up in me, me, me. But true love grows stronger and stronger and stronger. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's an amazing thing to experience it as well, to know, wow, I love you, darling, more than I loved you the day I married you. Now, the world looks at that with eyes of lust and cannot comprehend that, doesn't understand that. But true, spirit-driven, Christ-like love, knowing love because He first loved us, listen, it grows stronger 
and stronger and stronger. Let me just say a word here. Never marry someone who's not a Christian. Young people particularly, if you're unmarried, just hear your pastor when I say this. Only marry in the Lord. It's a non-negotiable. Only marry in the Lord. You cannot know what true love is without it. Now, my, this is not my intended message. Listen, I know that the Lord brings unsaved spouses to Himself. I know all of those things, and we praise God for it, don't we? Some of you here have a testimony where, where you love the Lord, you know the Lord, and the Lord's worked in your life and your marriage and strengthened your home, and you step back and you say, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Scripture's clear and gives plenty of teaching and instruction to show us how is it that we win and faithfully live the gospel in front of our unsaved spouses. And may the Lord apply His Word as we need to hear it. Proverbs 27.20 reminds us of why this is, as we've made this quick comparison. Why this is an empty man coming home to a full house, but it feels like an empty house. And just hear me, just let the, the Lord speak through His Word. Proverbs 27.20 is a verse I think it would be good for every single one of us to just remember and to nail down. And maybe read once a day with the world we live in. I'm going to read the verse, I'll tell you why. Hell and destruction are never full. Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. I'm going to read it again. Proverbs 27, 20. Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. That's not just for men. It's mankind. So ladies, don't hear that and just say, well, that's for the... No, no, listen, it's for all of us. The average person sees, and this is just an aside, this is not in the notes, so I'm going to just say it and move on. The average person, if my memory serves correct, sees three to 4,000, and I think that's a low number. Sounds high, but it's not. Sees, hears, or experiences and interacts with advertising a day. Ads through all the forms, mediums, billboards, radio, TV, social media. The average person, they say, experts say, interacts in a world of advertisement three to 4,000 times a day. A good portion of what that advertising is is to make you dissatisfied with your current lot in life right now. You've got to understand that. Well, listen, Xerxes did not live in the world that we live in today. He didn't see three to 4,000 um, advertisements a day. But listen, this is an empty man in his ancient world. And friends, we have empty people walking around in our modern world. Just remember, only Christ satisfies. He's the key to everything. All in all is Jesus. And Jesus is everything. He's not just all we have. It's not just all we need. He's all we have, friends. So as we look here at Esther chapter 2, verse 1, the Hebrew construction begins to imply to us that Xerxes is, begins in his mind and his actions, he's beginning to ponder about the previous dumb decisions he's made regarding Vashti. That he, he's blaming his seven counselors. In fact, it's not hard to see as these seven men are watching him, they begin to hatch a plan. Notice with me again, verse 3 and 4. They come to the king knowing he's unstable. These men are called wise men for a reason. Okay, So they come and they say, let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And I don't mean they're wise because of what they propose. I mean they're wise because they know him. Let these young ladies be brought before the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. By the way, there's 127 provinces, historians tell us, of his kingdom at this point. This is insane. Let them appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, from India to Ethiopia, 
that they may gather all the young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations begin to be given to them, and then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now, this thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, interestingly enough, we can imagine in our current moment uh, as Americans living in 2023, we can actually imagine such a thing. I don't think there's one person that read this and was like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's not. Not for us. This is what we'd call our modern day, say, beauty pageants or contests. In other words, we can understand the concept. There's whole reality TV shows built around this type of thing that that Americans are just absorbed with. But to the Persians, historians tell us this is absolutely off-the-chain rockers. It's, it's unheard of. There's never been such a thing in ancient Persian culture. In fact, according to Herodotus, the Greek historian, the Persian custom was for the queen to come from the noble families closest to the king. In fact, they tell us there were seven key noble families uh, that were closest to the king. And some scholars believe Mimukin, which was the leading noble we saw in chapter 1, uh, who initially verbalized the idea of getting rid of Vashti. Many believe that he had a prominent, eligible daughter uh, that would come from, it would be natural for him to say, okay, that's, that's my next queen. So part of these wise men coming to him, if that's true, that's, can't nail it down, is that they're worried he might marry one of their daughters or one of their young ladies. And so they're trying to direct his attention. They're playing to his lust. They see that he's clearly unstable. And so one thing is clear is that this new idea is something that has never before been seen in Persian history. One can only imagine the word on the street. And I'm just going to go ahead and confess to you, this is maybe this passage from here to the end of chapter 2 is maybe one of the most difficult passages I've ever studied. And it's difficult because we have preconceived notions that we bring to the text about Esther and preconceived notions that we bring to the text about Mordecai. And it's just the beautiful thing of studying God's Word. But just remember, in the description, God is not explicitly mis- mis- mentioned in the text. So when we think about our heroes, that I'm going to come back to in just a second, there's usually these identifying markers that, that points to their character. But the writer here of Esther is not drawing that out of the text. The writer here of Esther is just simply laying out the facts before us, showing us the narrative, showing us the scene as if it's an axe within a play, showing us the players and just simply telling us what happens. And so we can only imagine what is the word on the street. For many as they hear the king is looking for a queen outside of the normal pattern of choosing from these royal families, he's opening it up to everybody. No doubt to some who are ignorant or in poverty, that would be good news to them. To, to their ignorance, they're thinking, wow, I have the possibility to, to be queen. To others who know the king, not all that shimmers is, is good. In other words, they see a facade of royalty in the palace and riches and care and all of those things, but they also know their king, and they know just how depraved it is. Make no mistake about it, there's not going to be a panoply of judges. There's just one judge in this beauty pageant. And all the auditions will be private. There's no way to sugarcoat it. There's no way to to try to explain it beyond that. And one thing we know about this king is that he is Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He is stable in one moment, 
and he is unstable in another. Xerxes is the face of debauchery and selfishness and lust, really anything but true Christ-like love. And so these eunuchs are brought in, the palace eunuchs are brought in to keep administrative oversight of the harem. Now we can only imagine what the word on the, really on the street is. Many maybe are responding to participate, thinking this might be their chance. As we see, it seems to indicate is Mordecai's guidance of Esther to enter into this event, this queen-searching event. But everything we know about Xerxes, it's confusing. And yet, what are we anchored in? As we've already pointed out, we are anchored in the providence of God. We don't know all the reasons, we don't know all the details up until this point, but it's very clear that for some, one commentator says this, to be called and brought into the harem of the king would be a luxurious desolation in a prison sentence. And so we are comforted by knowing this, God is working all things after the counsel of his will. So number one, the king's search is planned. A plan is hatched, it begins to be activated. Secondly, we see the king's satisfaction pursued. Notice with me verse 5. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives. He had been captured, of whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So Mordecai, verse 7, had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Psalm 76, verse 10, gives this little gold nugget, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, O God. As we've mentioned before, there are times where it seems as if God is mysterious and silent. And I would say this is definitely one of those times God is silent, mysterious, what is taking place. But one thing we find here is that He's never absent. And in these verses, we see God and the Holy Spirit and the writer here of Esther drawing into us, drawing us into the story of what God is doing by giving us these names and telling us a little bit about the family lineage of Mordecai. Uh, we see here that the background of Mordecai is presented to us in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 21. The providence of God begins to get clearer and clearer and show itself in this obscure man whose name is Mordecai. Now, this is the first time he's really introduced to us here in detail. The first thing we notice is his place. Uh, verses 5 and 21 describe for us that he lives in Shushan the palace and there was a certain Jew there. Now in Shushan the palace was a certain Jew named Mordecai. Then in verse 21, through a circumstances we'll see next time together, he set, sits at the king's gate. So this is a man who's been elevated. This is an obscure man. This is a man that God has appointed and raised up for this time. Secondly, we see in description of this detail, his background, his people. Notice how the text wants us to know he is a, there was a certain Jew. Now, his name is Mordecai. It's literally a transliteration of Marduk, which is the chief god of, of Babylon. And so what we see here is, what is this Jewish man? Why does the Holy Spirit want us to know he's a Jew? What, what is this Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin, as he tells us here, we just read, doing in a place like Susa? 
Why didn't he return to Jerusalem when the Persian captivity ended? We have another question. Maybe you thought, why is he named after a pagan god? Well, the Holy Spirit here pulls to the forefront of the text that Mordecai's lineage dates all the way back. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is remarkable. This is, goes all the way back to King Saul. In fact, Mordecai's grandfather was Shimei, 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, during the rebellion of Absalom. You'll remember David and Abishai and David and his mighty men, they're coming back into, or they're, they're on the run, and Shimei, who's of the house of Saul, begins to curse David. Just again and again, he spits at David, and he's throwing stones at David. And Abishai, that mighty warrior, finally leans over to David, reading David's Example, kind of like, what is David? How is he taking this? And finally, David's ignoring him. And Abishai says, let me go over there and cut his head off. And David says, no, let him curse. Perhaps God has sent him. Perhaps he's right. Let him curse. Let him curse. Well, this is Mordecai's lineage. Mordecai's grandfather was that man named Shimei. Shimei cursed David during Absalom's rebellion, as we saw and. Kish was the father of King Saul. All of this is brought into play for us. In fact, one commentator says this, Hundreds of years earlier, when King David was running for his life from Absalom, Mordecai's forefather, Shimei, threw rocks at David and cursed him for stealing away Saul's throne. David's son, Solomon, later would put Shimei to death. If Mordecai knew all of this and knew his family heritage and his family story, then perhaps Jerusalem represented a place of defeat for him. It was the place where his family had lost their place of power, their bid for power. It was a place of embarrassment and shame. So it seems he's settled in here in Persia, and we're reading into this. We don't know this for sure, but it could be that his aspirations are really to make something of himself. And even in his love and care for Esther, we cannot help but wonder, on the human side, what is he doing with this crazy king putting this beautiful young girl who's an orphan, what is he doing? Putting her, and by the way, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that. It describes it in that way, putting her in this position. And why is he named after a pagan god? Well, we all know that we don't get to pick our names. At least we weren't there when they did it, or we were there, excuse me. We weren't cognizant and uh, didn't always get a voice in that. So we, we got to give him that. But I think it points to the fact that Mordecai's father is turning away from his Jewish heritage and naming him after the pagans, getting settled down in the land of Persia. But it's interesting, the Holy Spirit wants us to know something. And what is it the Holy Spirit wants us to know? Eight times in the book of Esther, Mordecai is identified as a Jew. Chapter 2, verse 5, as we see here. Chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 13, and a number of others. The Holy Spirit takes time to tell us, much like the Holy Spirit wanted us to know, Ruth... The Moabitess, right? The Holy Spirit's not ever lacking for vocabulary at His disposal. He wants us to know it. And here He wants us to know that Mordecai is a Jew. Now here's what's interesting. As we hit a landing spot here for this evening, Mordecai is keeping all of this a secret. It's clear here in the text that he has kept his identity concealed for some time because even in this day among the Persians, the Jews were a captive people. They were a despised people, as we'll see later on in this book, as we see Haman and his designs against the Jews. 
So Mordecai fears that the knowledge of his being a Jew, of the people of God, is something that is a liability for him. It's a reminder to us, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. Isn't it a beautiful thing to see our God working in all these ways, showing us the background of Mordecai? Not only do we see the background of Mordecai, but secondly, we see his love and benevolence that he shows for Esther. And we'll introduce Esther here. Here in this scene, we're introduced to Mordecai. Now we're introduced to Esther, verse 7. Now he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for the young woman was an orphan. So very clearly in the text, we're introduced to Esther and we're told that her parents have passed away. We don't know any of the details. We don't know what has taken place, but it's clear here in the text that Mordecai is her father. He is raising her up um, in his care. Her name is Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. It means myrtle. And Esther is her Persian name. It means star. And many believe it's a derivative or points to the, the goddess Ishtar. And so she is given a pagan name. This is her identification. She is completely being raised up in this Persian Gentile environment. Now, he believes it's best and wise to enter her into this contest, for lack of better words. I think we can think of a few reasons why Esther would seem like the most unlikely woman to be chosen as queen of Persia. Just some off-the-cuff, surface-level observations. Number one, she was an orphan. And what I'm trying to draw out here is just how remarkable this is, how God wants her to be where she is. Number one, she's an orphan. She's got no connections. She is one of the least of these. She comes from the captive people of, of Israel. No money, no wealth. This is an amazing thing. In other words, she offers the king no beneficial arrangement between wealth, family wealth or nobility. That's usually how the king obtained his queen. That's why they expected him to choose it of the noble families. But this, that's not Esther. You could say it like this. She's a Cinderella. She's an ordinary peasant girl, a nobody. So number one, she's an orphan. Secondly, she is up against numerical competition. Here's the idea, and I'm not trying to state the obvious. Josephus says this, the first century Jewish historian. Josephus says in this contest, for lack of better words, there was over a thousand women. Just swarms of the best of the best coming to the king. So, this is seemingly impossible. And then thirdly, just the fact that she was a Jew. The Jews were a defeated people. They were a despised people. They were outsiders. But what is amazing here is that it's obvious that no one knows but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws this out for us and points us to this. And we see in verses 7 through 9, not only His care for her, His kindness and benevolence, there's these obvious reasons that are stacked against Esther. But then the Holy Spirit, verses 7 through 9, points out that she is beautiful. And we've already read it multiple times, so I'm not going to walk through the text again, but you see that. But what's interesting is in verse 10. Verse 10 tells us this. Verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her people or her family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court and in the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. It seems as if, as we think about putting together Mordecai's story, where he is now, his past and his role in the family and the life of Israel, 
the names that are given to Esther in his own name, it seems as if that Mordecai is effectively saying, listen, Israel is who we are, but that's a thing of the past. That won't get us anywhere here. To, to succeed here, there's no mention here of seeking the Lord's face or interceding on behalf of Esther to see is this the mind of the Lord or the will of the Lord. It seems as if Mordecai is doing what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a verse we quote often here, tells us not to do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Lean not into your own understanding. And it seems as if Mordecai is saying here, We're on our own. It's all up to us. Let's go shock the world, for lack of better words. Esther, you're amazing. You're smart. You're witty. You're beautiful. Esther, it seems as if Mordecai is saying, I believe in you, and together we can make a great team. And so he advises her and helps her to enter into this king's harem. Verse 7 and verse 9 tells us that she immediately pleases the king. Verse 9, now the young woman pleased him, and she, notice here, obtained his favor. Now this is interesting language. Notice again verse 15. Now when the turn for Esther came... The daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. Again, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. In verse 9 and in verse 15, it is made very clear that Esther receives favor. Now, God may not be explicitly mentioned here in the text, but let me just tell you, this is God. This is God working. In fact, the language, if you do character studies, if you go back to the story of Joseph, the Bible makes clear that Joseph was given favor in the eyes of literally everywhere he went, but the text makes clear where the favor came from. It came from God. God turned the heart of the jailer towards Joseph. He gave him favor. Joseph's character was excellent. The Bible tells us about Joseph. It's interesting. The Bible doesn't stutter and is not silent on these individuals' outward characteristics and personalities or features. It tells us that Joseph was a handsome man, that he was a very interesting man. Yet, the most important part in that is that God gave him favor in the eyes of Pharaoh, excuse me, Potiphar, and the jailer. What about Daniel? You're just trying to draw out some historical examples where the Scripture is clear that their success is not on their own accord. Daniel, everywhere Daniel went, he received favor. Where did that favor come from? It came from God. Now, God is not explicitly mentioned here, and so I want to draw out where He is. It's everywhere. You already know. You're nodding your head. You have the eyes to see. But in verses 9 and 15, it's clear that Esther obtained favor in the eyes of those who were over her. This word favor is the Hebrew word kesed, which is the same term that is used for God's covenant favor and kindness toward His people. And we see it here twice in so many verses. And behold, the hand of our God at work. He's raising up and putting Esther in place for such a time as this. Friends, behold the beauty and the mystery of Scripture. We are responsible for our decisions, our choices, we'll give an account to the Lord for our actions and all that we do. As we saw this morning, we will give an account, a rendering to the Lord for all of our works, 
our stewardship. For us as believers in Christ, our judgment will not be the same as the unbelievers. We understand that. But we must give an account of ourselves to the Lord. Behold the mystery and the beauty of God's ways and His wisdom. That we will give an accounting of ourselves, but yet also behold the wisdom of God and that He brings all things to His intended purposes. And He is bringing all these things to pass. And so it makes us wonder, so what is He doing today? In the same way. We don't read ourselves into every aspect of the Old Testament text. We're not even trying to. But I do think we need to hit pause and just say, what is God doing today? And when you're tempted this week to worry, when you're tempted this week to fret about your own life, when you're tempted to work, uh, this week to worry about things on the national scene or extended family, uh, things in your children's lives or things in your uh, parents' lives and these different things, ultimately, you need to lay your head down and rest in your sovereign God. And just know that you can trust Him and you can rest in Him. It doesn't mean we're Esther or Mordecai, but it does mean He's our God in the same way. Their God is our God. Now let's rest in Him and His finished work as we celebrate the Lord's table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for these Old Testament texts that show us Your faithfulness and Your goodness, Your ways, that teach us so much about Your character, O God. And we desire to know you deeply and in a more intimate way. So, Father, would you help us as your people to see you as we understand that the Scriptures testify of Christ. They testify of you. Would you help us to behold your glory and your beauty as we break the bread and drink of the cup? Father, in the quietness of this moment, would you give us just the chance to, as we pause and pray and seek your face, Father, would you show us by your Spirit anything that we need to deal with? Take a moment to say with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and try my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me. <coughs> Father, would you go before us now? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.